This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. I want you to do me a favour. Close your eyes. Focus now on how things enter your mind. Where are you? Notice the sounds around you as they appear in your consciousness. Now, concentrate on my voice, on how it's guiding you to do something. Now, direct your attention to whatever sensations you can feel. The feeling of the chair you might be sat on, your feet on the floor. Focus on how your emotions you might be happy, sad, tired, energetic, are presented to you. Now, all of these things are like objects to concentrate on. They're almost separate from your consciousness, as if your conscious focus selects them, shines a light over them like a torch. Okay, return to my voice. Focus on it. It's entered your head motivated you, prompted you, driven you to do certain things. Now, say the first thing that comes into your head. Was that really you? Where did that word come from? A memory, an idea, a conversation, perhaps. But is anything really originally you from within? Focus again on how you feel. Don't you feel like your consciousness is separate from your emotions, that you're overcome by them involuntarily. Doesn't it feel like we're all tugged, pushed and pulled around? Are we really free at all? Okay, open your eyes. What can we find that's really ours? Authenticity might be thought of as ownership or self-possession. Today we're going to take a short historical and philosophical tour of the inner you. Today, supposedly anyway, we're free. Free to do what makes us happy, to be anything we strive to be, to choose our own paths. We even feel free from parts of ourselves that maybe our emotions are something separate from our real selves, that there's a real self beneath them, a supra inner rational core that seems to transcend everything outside of it, that's somehow higher than those fleeting emotions that make us do things that aren't really us, don't really feel like us. We might think of an onion. The outer layer is the outside world. Then we have emotions, beliefs, maybe our bodies. And then right inside our thoughts, our consciousness interacting with all of the other layers. And then unconscious desires, maybe. What's right at the center? Is there even a center. The history of the search for authenticity has sought to understand this onion. It's been approached in many ways, 
sometimes as a revolt against the outer layer, against standards given to us by society. Other times as taking off the mask or the layers, or rejecting reading a script that's like the outer layer, a script that someone else has written for us, whether God from the Bible or society and its rules. Philosopher Jakob Gollum writes that the concept of authenticity is a protest against the blind mechanical acceptance of externally imposed values. The idea of an original self, a primordial condition, a personal or truthful way of living has been a persistent, maybe universal, feature of human history. Christianity's original sin, the fall from the Garden of Eden, the idea of utopia or paradise, they're all searches for a type of authenticity. And today, the idea that there's a true self behind the curtain, outside of the matrix, or to be found on a backpacking trip, is a powerful, maybe central, modern idea. But around 200 years ago, a monumental paradigm shift occurred. For millennia, it was believed that the cosmos was ordered. Knowing oneself meant knowing one's place in the universe. You were born to be a butcher, a king, a slave. For the pre-moderns, people had a function within a wider plan. God's plan, usually. So there was no sense in making oneself or crafting some kind of personality. Identity was bound up with the rest of the universe. But modernity changed this. The reformations and revolutions and enlightenments that marked the beginning of the modern age put the individual front and centre. And science demystified the universe, secularising Europe. If I'm not born into my place in the world, if God doesn't define who I am, then who am I? We all want to live organically, truthfully, want our identities to be our own. Is it any wonder then that Hamlet, the story of a young man wrestling with the question of to be or not to be, is maybe the most famous and most retold tale of our time? Its themes, individuality, inner turmoil, right and wrong, cowardice, are universal ones. As Polonius tells his son in the play, this, above all else, to thine own self be true, and it must follow, as the night the day, thou cannot then be false to any man. But what or where is this authentic self that we must listen to? Does it even exist? Maybe follow your heart, be yourself, and listen to your gut are as ambiguous and meaningless as they often sound. Well, to find out, we'll begin with a question the great French Enlightenment thinker Jean-Jacques Rousseau asked himself. Are we all wearing masks? Rousseau was interested in the difference between our modern societies and original hunter-gatherers. His most important idea was that people in a state of nature lived in face-to-face, -face, direct, unmediated communities. Everyone knew each other, and everyone 
more or less, performed similar tasks. We were each self-sufficient. In modern society, however, we divide our tasks between ourselves and we each specialise in our skill sets. We have a much more distinct division of labour. This has one important consequence. We need things from each other. Moreover, we're constantly asked to prove that we can deliver, that we're up to the job, that we have the required skills. Modern life is a constant job interview. Not only this, but many of us, in seeking the status required to prove we have value, will bullshit. We'll attempt to create an image of success by exaggerating the stories we tell, by putting filters on our Instagram posts, by editing what we display of our lives and embellishing the truth. So ultimately, the competitive nature of modern life forces us to wear masks that aren't really us. Rousseau's solution is a classic one. Follow your heart. Don't edit. Do what feels right. But what does this even mean? Well, he thought that when we embellish the truth, we selectively draw upon certain facts. We omit certain details or do something because we think it will please someone else. But if we focus on our feelings rather than the facts, we might find that we were selective of certain facts because we felt a certain way in a particular moment, ashamed, insecure, jealous. Rousseau wrote the first modern autobiography, The Confessions, which encapsulated this idea. Write confessedly, unedited, warts and all, about the things that you've done and the feelings that motivated them. In doing this, he says, you'll get to the truth. He writes, I have only one faithful guide on which I can count, the succession of feelings that have marked the development of my being. I may omit or transpose certain facts or make mistakes in dates, but I cannot go wrong about what I have felt or about what my feelings have led me to do. And these are the chief subjects of my story. So we see two key concepts in Rousseau that we might find parallels with in later thinkers. First, the importance of emoting. And second, the need to express that emotion in writing or in art. What we see in Rousseau is a type of expressivism, that we should take our inner experience and express it outwards into the world, turn it into art and literature, into creativity. Life should be turned into a great novel. Now, Rousseau had a thunderous impact on European culture, on the Enlightenment, on Romanticism. Painters, novelists, philosophers, they all quoted Rousseau and the idea of emoting. In fact, there was a cult of Rousseau. He was the first to psychologise the idea of alienation, that we live in chains, distanced from our true selves, dissatisfied by our work routines and social and political lives. We don't really feel like us. Alienation is a common theme in the history of authenticity. 
Marx argued, for example, that we were alienated because, amongst other things, we lived to produce products for others to sell. Commodities that we only contribute to in pieces on the factory line. We have creative essences that need to be exercised. Life is meant to require fullness, a range of activity, and a social and political life that we all can contribute to. But while both Marx and Rousseau were interested in how we were meant to live, neither of them used the term authenticity. At around the same time, though, the Danish Christian Soren Kierkegaard began to try to think clearly about what it would really entail. In his diary, the 22-year-old Kierkegaard wrote that the thing is to find a truth which is true for me, to find the idea for which I can live and die. He argued that life's real calling was to take leaps of faith towards what we feel is the truth, then turn that truth inward and live it through passion and action. Kierkegaard agreed with Rousseau that authentic life required emotion, but he was also concerned that too much reflection, an excess of navel-gazing and a wandering mind would kill action. To live was to do things passionately. In his book, The Present Age, he wrote that our age is essentially one of understanding and reflection without passion. He knew that the truths that really mattered were the ones we decide to hold for ourselves, and that thinking, logic and reason were all good enough tools to aid us in getting there, but could not take us all the way. There are no real exterior logical reasons that can be given to convince you to make a particular choice, to decide whether a reason given to do something has force for you within. Deciding how to live, whether to be a parent or a school teacher or a liberal or a painter, required a careful study of the facts, followed by a resolute and passionate leap of faith. We must dive headfirst into what feels right, and he calls this subjective truth. For Kierkegaard, intention plus commitment plus passion equals authenticity. Moreover, a rigid dedication to science, facts or ethics won't produce progress. For that, something must be created, creatively, from within. Again, passion plus action. He wrote that, with every turning point in history, there are two movements to be observed. On the one hand, the new shall come forth. On the other, the old must be displaced. Kierkegaard confronts us with a powerful question. Why is it that we try to be rational? Why learn and read? It's usually and ultimately, if we follow the course, as Rousseau argued, because of our passions, our feelings and our gut. As Hume said, Reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions. Passion isn't about certainty, it's about faith, about diving into those passions for good or bad and seeing where they might lead you. 
Kierkegaard and Rousseau both lived through a period of unparalleled scientific and industrial advance. Many of these advances challenged the Christian framework of European life. To many, nowhere did this seem more dangerous than with ethical questions, standards about right and wrong. The scientific view is built around causation, that I work because I want to eat, I eat because I'm hungry, I'm hungry because I need energy. But ethical values, to be good to one's neighbour, give to charity, show courage, be modest and frugal, were traditionally said to come from God. He commands them, encourages them, they're written down in the Bible. What would happen if we decided that they weren't God's will, but instead was something more terrifying. Human. All too human. How do we define our values? We're often presented with values as if they're dogmas, standards we're expected to live up to. I value being kind, for example. Now it's easy to assume that we value being kind because it's good for us, good for our communities, for human flourishing. But that's not always the case. Sometimes people need tough love. Sometimes kindness literally kills. Sometimes we just don't feel like it. In these circumstances, when we irritably ask, why should I be kind? The 19th century reply might have been, because God tells us to in the Bible. But people were increasingly questioning this view, and an unknown German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, realised something powerful. If God wasn't the source of our values, then we were. Where would they come from? What would they become in a secular world? Kierkegaard had already pointed to the difficulties of these kinds of questions. Shall I pursue happiness, duty, a project, a family, which political principles? One solution is that we find the answers to these questions out there, in the world somewhere. But the other is that we create them ourselves. Nietzsche wrote that all evaluations are either original or adopted, the latter being by far the most common. Most people, he thought, adopted their values, their beliefs and their worldviews from other people. We were sheep and Christianity had encouraged this. Priesthoods literally adopted the metaphor of the shepherd and the flock. However, the flock had forgotten their creative power. That not only could values be adopted from the shepherd or from other sheep or commanded by God, but could be created by all of us. To do this for Nietzsche was an artistic act. It meant taking our pathos, our sentiments, emotional states, temperaments and dispositions, and organising the chaos of a godless world into a harmonious whole for ourselves. For Nietzsche, we must give style to our characters, progressively integrating our traits and our habits and our patterns into a creative force that's for us. In this sense, our lives are like a novel. We embark on projects 
sets with beginnings and middles and ends, we think of chapters. We give ourselves and the people we encounter characteristics. And ultimately, the meaning of our life story is down to us. Creativity is power, and we must have the will to power. We must know how to use it. For Nietzsche, the values, lessons, skills and histories we all draw from are like ladders. We use them to climb, and it's part of our fate to have to draw upon them. We must love our fates, acknowledge what we're best at, know our environments, but ultimately, at the top of all the ladders, there's only us. He wrote, and if you now lack all ladders, then you must know how to climb on your own head. To accomplish means to unfold something into the fullness of its essence, to lead it forth into this fullness. Unlike Rousseau, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, who were concerned with the way society forces us to be something we're not, for Heidegger, it's more our own anxiety and the prospect of our own death that elicits the desire for an authentic life. Why is this? For Heidegger, death is an ontological fact of life and becoming aware of it is an awareness of our own limited finitude, an acknowledgement that our lives are temporary. Most people inauthentically avoid reflecting on this, but if we do, we become acutely aware of something powerful. In facing our own deaths, we are forced to choose how to live, we often put off plans like learning a new language or doing charity work or traveling or painting with that classic excuse. I'll get to that later, when I have time. And if our lives were infinite, this would be honest. We could do anything, go anywhere, be everything we wanted to be. It's only because our lives are finite that we're forced to choose, that we have to fit a finite amount of things into our lives. Death forces us to confront our choices. Now, certain things do continue on after our deaths. Children, our work, we might have written a book, taken some great family photos, created a unique cake recipe. So authenticity involves acknowledging that we have limited time to do something lasting. It's a relationship between the finite and the infinite. Heidegger asks us to think of the average person, the statistical anyone. Socially, they cannot die because they simply can be replaced. The average baker in town is replaced by another baker. Fathers are replaced by sons. One employee replaced with another. But think about the way the world mourns when great figures die, or even when that incredible little irreplaceable bakery in town closes down. There's a sense that we've lost something unique, that their life was finite, that they're gone and cannot be replaced. Living authentically means making choices with this in mind, not delaying them or acting them out averagely. 
This doesn't mean you have to be some great world-changing figure or die for some noble cause. The baker can also be irreplaceable. So friendly, talented, original, creative, in such a novel combination that the town would mourn their loss. What's unique to Heidegger is he says this psychology is within all of us, and that if we ignore it, it will result in an existential anxiety. We'll float through life haunted by guilt. So there's a sense in which authenticity is an owning of one's choices. But as we can see from the Baker and the Great Figures examples, there's something social about Heidegger's conception of authenticity too. We're not isolated. Authenticity is not just something within us, individually, because we are beings in the world. And this is unavoidably being with others in a social context. Heidegger's account of authenticity is a journey. The world is presented to us first in its averageness, its everydayness, the statistical average baker, the average street, the average tree. We make idle chat, discuss the weather, we fool into what others are saying, we're dominated by the they, we're seduced by people into becoming average, we're tempted to go along with the world, to fit in. We compare ourselves with everything and drift along towards an alienation in which our own most potentiality for being is hidden from us. But this is always accompanied by guilt and anxiety. I should be doing something. I should be being someone. We're always offering excuses. Isn't it too late, for example? Confronting this, acknowledging our finite time, forces us to acknowledge we have a unique contribution to make to the world. We can see some parallels with Heidegger in Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Conrad argued that a confrontation with extreme situations, like the prospect of death or the danger of the jungle, was a way to test your authentic self when the support of society is ripped away. Of the main character, Kurtz, in Heart of Darkness, he wrote, Mr. Kurtz lacked restraint in the gratification of his various lusts, but the wilderness had found him out early and had whispered to him things about himself which he did not know things of which he had no conception till he took counsel with this great solitude, and the whisper had proved irresistibly fascinating. It echoed loudly within him, because he was hollow at the core. Okay, let's pause for one moment. What do we have so far? Know thyself, or to thine own self be true. We have taking off masks and searching through our own emotions, something that since Rousseau has turned into modern psychology. We have passion, action, creativity, defining our own values, confronting our own deaths, challenging ourselves. But all of these things are still given to us. I've read them in books and I'm relating them to you. Our emotions and passions even push and push.
colour surround. They sometimes, as we mentioned, feel like they overcome us. So are we ever really free from these things? Free to really choose to become something just for ourselves? Remember at the beginning of this video, when I suggested that your consciousness, shining a light on objects, ideas, sounds or words, is like a torch? Well, for Jean-Paul Sartre, the 20th century existentialist, our true selves is that torch. And that light, that conscious experience, focusing, darting, moving around, is completely free, transcendent, spontaneous, unencumbered by everything outside of it. Masks, scripts written by others, even our own emotions. For Sarge, we're always free, and that's at the heart of authenticity. Now, Sarge is difficult to summarise, but I'll try and give a brief summary. Close your eyes again. Think of all the things we've covered. Think of your hobbies, your passions. Think about you. For Sarge, consciousness, like the torch, highlights these things, but it's always separate from them. Focus on the idea you have of yourself. You are now consciousness focusing on yourself, but it's an idea of yourself made up of biases, observations, reflections, and your consciousness focusing on it is something different. There's two different things going on. He writes, the ego is not the owner of consciousness, it's the object of consciousness. Consciousness has no content of its own, no character traits, no personality. It flits and darts about spontaneously, focusing on this and that. It's ruled only by itself. He says, to be is to fly out into the world in order suddenly to burst out as consciousness in the world. This means that no matter who you are, what your beliefs are, what society tells you to do, or what emotional state you're in, what your passions are, you're always free to do otherwise. And this freedom is authenticity. Let's take an example. I'm six foot two and 34 years old. I'm never going to be a professional basketball player. And it makes no sense for me to try. I'm not good at it. There are no basketball courts near me. I'm never going to be accepted onto a team. I might even hate basketball. These might all be absolute certain facts, but none of them can stop me from trying to become a professional basketball player. In this sense, it's not my identity that determines what I do, but what I do what I try and do, what my projects are, that determines my identity. We're not born to do anything. There's no such thing as fate. We're not controlled by our emotions or passions or told what to do by anyone. We always have an option to say no. I'm always free to do otherwise from what's expected from me or even what I expect of myself. 
This means that the transcendent consciousness, the torch, cannot be defined by anything. It's just movement, just light, just focus. It's not determined by beliefs, IQ, sexuality. It can always escape from these things. For such, the past history of the world is no use. We're always on our own. Philosopher Jacob Gollum puts it like this. Sartre's characterization of consciousness as free spontaneity, reflectively positing its own transcendent objects as active rather than reactive, as neither caused by nor causing external objects, and as transparent to itself, calls to mind the attributes of authenticity. Spontaneity, lucidity, activity, reflectiveness, self-sufficiency, and originality. For Sartre, the result of not using this spontaneous, lucid freedom properly results in what he calls bad faith. Our consciousness, in spontaneously darting and flitting about, sees the world in lots of different ways, and we conceptualise it in a way that's relative to our own lives, our own projects. Take this orange. When I look at it, I create an idea of it in my head. Now, I might do that because I'm hungry, but I might look at it because I'm a chemist researching vitamin C, say. I might be an artist painting fruit in an 18th century scene. Or I might be making a YouTube video about its relation to authenticity. The ways we look at and think about objects are unlimited. They're not contained within the object themselves. But that means we can ignore certain things that we shouldn't. It means I might avoid looking properly, or look ambiguously, emphasising certain parts, or ignoring others. Take the way I look at and think about this cigar. Like the orange, there are many ways I could look at it, but I see it as a source of relief, a way to relax with a drink, a crutch, maybe. I ignore its effects on my health, its costs, how other people dislike it. And this is bad faith. I'm not considering all sides. We might think of comfortable half-truths or ignoring the elephant in the room. And of course, we look at our own characters in bad faith too, telling ourselves convenient stories about why we can't do this or why we shouldn't do that. Bad faith is finding comforting excuses. Authenticity, on the other hand, means looking lucidly, freely, piercingly with that torch at every nook and cranny of myself and my life. We can see there's a disagreement with Kierkegaard here. Where Kierkegaard argues that too much reflection prevents us from acting, Sartre thinks that reflection is key as long as it's honest. It's often said that authenticity might be equated with childhood, that in childhood we're like Rousseau's hunter-gatherers, unmoulded by society, free to express ourselves naturally. In Tolstoy's story The Death of Ivan Illich, Illich realises he's been gradually becoming unhappier as he's grown older. He writes, 
It's as if I had been going downhill while I imagined I was going up, and that is really what it was. I was going up in public opinion, but to the same extent, life was ebbing away from me. And more recently, the psychoanalyst Alice Miller has argued that many unhappy people didn't receive the parental support they needed growing up. She says that every child has a legitimate need to be noticed, understood, taken seriously and respected by his mother. When they don't, the child develops a false self to please their parents, burying the feelings that were discouraged and developing traits encouraged. This results in an inauthentic and unhappy self. According to Miller, the key to overcoming this is learning to express emotions and ideas without shame and guilt. In this sense, Rousseau was right. We feel shame or guilt or other negative emotions because we've been taught that something is shameful or guilty. If we tear off the mask, we might ask why we care. Who are we trying to please? Us? Or someone else. Some are critical of this approach though, that there's a true inner creative authentic pure child waiting to come out. It supposes that there's a real me, a concrete I, buried beneath the surface waiting to come out. Take this 1890 description of the self from the psychologist William James. A man has as many social selves as there are groups of individuals who recognise him and carry an image of him in their mind. He generally shows a different side of himself to each of these different groups. We do not show ourselves to our children as to our club companions, to our customers as to the labourers we employ, to our own masters and employers as our intimate friends. From this there results what practically is a division of the man into several selves. Like James, many are critical of the idea that authenticity comes from within. It's a social phenomenon as much as a psychological one. The anthropologist Clifford Geertz, for example, argued that humans are cultural animals. He wrote that man is, in physical terms, an incomplete and unfinished animal. What sets him off most graphically from non-men less is his sheer ability to learn, great as that is, than how much and what particular sorts of things he has to learn in order to function at all. In the book, The Authenticity Hoax, Andrew Potter has said that we don't find our authentic self by peeling away the shell of civilization until we reach the hard nut of the natural self at the core. The self is more like an onion. There is no natural self to be found at the centre because there is no centre. It's an odd choice of metaphor because an onion does have a centre but we can understand roughly what he means. How is it possible to think about an authentic self when the idea has been so ambiguous? Moreover, the critics have argued that the pursuit of authenticity is a self-centered ambition, egotistical, individualistic, self-absorbed. Ultimately, 
having a theory of authenticity is impossible because that would contradict the idea itself. Authenticity cannot have a meaning, a definition. Otherwise, it falls into its own trap of being a script written by others, something coming from the outer layer of the onion, something that's not really yours. As Nietzsche said, I mistrust all systematizers and I avoid them. The will to a system is a lack of integrity. So where does that leave us? Well, first, while Nietzsche did distrust systematizers, he did, as we saw, encourage giving style to our characters, integrating patterns, knowing our traits. There's a similarity here with Sartre, who used the metaphor of the melody to describe how consciousness constructs a self over time. And also with Rousseau, who advocated for expressive, confessional writing. Most of these thinkers wrote in many different styles and mediums, philosophy, fiction, film, poetry, autobiography. So maybe first, there's a stage of exploration, of experimentation, a tugging at our seams, a lucid investigation of one's own character, Rather than being prodded, pushed, and pulled around, we can at least prod, push, and pull at our own selves, our intentions, our beliefs, our reasons for doing things. And then maybe there's a second stage that they all seem to have in common. And it's an emphasis on doing, on taking action decisively and passionately creating our own stories, values, art, literature, our own worldviews, whatever it might be. To return to our opening statement, we might say that know thyself is one part of being authentic, but create thyself and the world is just as important too. A huge, huge thank you, as always, to all of these people for making this video possible. They're the only way this video has been possible. So if you'd like to join them in supporting more videos like this, uh, like the next video on authenticity and politics and community, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash then and I, where you can support me for as little as a dollar. And if you can't do that, just hit subscribe, like, share, hit that bell, and maybe leave a comment for the algorithm, if not for anything else, or maybe just for your authentic self. Either way, hopefully I'll see you next time.